The scripture reading today is taken from the book of Luke 12 and Matthew 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, What should I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys at field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. This is the word of the Lord. So I think it's a a fascinating practice to look at the movies. And you can look at at what's hot in Hollywood um, and figure out basically what we're afraid of, right? So, you know, it used to be when I was a kid, all the bad guys in the movies were Russians. It was the Cold War. You know, sorry for those of you who have Russian background. It was the Cold War. All the, you know, the bad guys were Russians. And, but after the, you know, the wall fell, after the end of the, the Cold War, everything now is who? Who are the bad guys? Aliens. <laughs> aliens and, yeah. Aliens are kind of, they're kind of a staple of all time. I think that's right. What else? Terrorists, thank you, yeah. And, you know, so you look at these movies and you're like, you can tell what we're afraid of. I also like looking at more timeless movies, particularly B-rate movies, tell you things we're afraid of. So there was a, a season that, of, that apparently many people were afraid of small dolls coming to life with knives. There's a whole series of Chucky movies that came out. About you know, there's a whole, there was um, one movie that combined two fears together in just this great package, Snakes on a plane. <laughs> Crazy, you know, like two things we're afraid of put together in one unbelievable B-rate movie. You know, um, you know It was a movie about clowns. Some of us have fears about clowns. Um, today I want to think about the movie Outbreak. Um, Outbreak came out a few years ago. It's a movie about a virus that goes wild and begins just killing off huge portions of the population. And it's, it was one of those things because it was undetected. It was hard to see what was happening, and suddenly it wipes people out. And, you know, I think that there's something about today's passage where Jesus addresses this man that in, a, in a some way he's saying, look, there's an outbreak. There's a deadly virus going around. There is something that is an unseen killer that you need to be aware of. You need to be worked up over. See, a man comes to Jesus, right? Here's the background of the story from Luke 12. A man comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, Rabbi, would you come and settle a dispute between me and my brother over the inheritance? My parents, 
estate? And Jesus says, no. Now, it's not an unusual request of Jesus. Jesus was a rabbi, and rabbis in ancient Israel, as well as today, are still the judges of the Jewish community. So it's not an unusual thing that somebody would ask Jesus to decide this between them. And yet Jesus doesn't do so because he says he discerns something else going on. And he says, beware, watch out. Verse 15, he tells us what to watch out for. The man's real problem is what? Covetousness. Theonexia in Greek. It means wanting more. Greed. You know, greed is something that's impossible to see in yourself. It's impossible to see in yourself. I will tell you as a pastor that people come and talk to me about lots of their problems. I have meetings with people who are, people are saying, I'm struggling with this, struggling with this particular area. You know, can you pray for me? Hey, can you offer any comfort or encouragement or counsel to me in this area of my life? In all my years, in 10 years of being a pastor, an ordained guy, I've never had one conversation where someone came to me and said, please pray for me, I'm greedy. I've never had anybody come and say, Could, you know, I really need help. This is a major issue in my life. Greed is impossible to see in yourself. You know, it's different from most any other sin. For example, Jesus never says in the Bible, he never says, watch out, you might be committing adultery. Right? He doesn't have to say that. You know if you're committing adultery. You know, it's not like a guy turns to the woman next to him and says, wait, you're not my wife. I thought you were my wife. Nobody has to do that. You know, greed is something, though, that Jesus does have to say, watch out. Watch out. There's an outbreak. You may not see this. You may not know this is happening. This is a deadly virus. You may be infected already. You may be, your time may be running out. See, Jesus has to come and say this to them. You know, the word greedy, it makes us think of other people, right? You know, it makes us think of other people. We think of Enron executives. People who maybe have gotten like, this virus is in an advanced state. We think of the folks who benefited from the, the financial bubble that burst. We're like, you know, people in the banking industry, those are the, sorry, Jesse, you know, those are the bad guys out there, right? We're like, you know, those people are, surely it's executives out there somewhere, not us. We never think of ourselves as people who struggle with greed. You know, if I ask you to talk about your money, this is what you'll tell me. I'm careful with my money. You know, I, I try to be really careful. You know, I, I really think about what I spend, what I save. Or you like this. You're like me. You're like, you know, I don't buy just lots of stuff. I'm into quality. Right? But here's the problem. Here's the problem with that. You know, we're not greedy, right? I mean, you could say, Jeff, I got lots of problems, but this isn't me. One of the warnings is if you're a person who's here this morning and saying, good, I can sort of sit this one out. This isn't me. That's a bad sign. I know that's a dirty preacher trick, but that's a bad sign, right? Because one of the signs that this is at work in your life is that you don't see it. This is one of the things that we really need to ask ourselves. Am I infected? You know, we're in our second week study for this fall in the the parables of Jesus. 
And Jesus tells these stories, these parables. And the, the word parable means literally something thrown alongside. Para, alongside, boe, thrown. Something just thrown alongside that you sort of walk and you, you trip over and you pick up and you say, what is this doing here? You know, Jesus told parables not to give people new information, but to help people discover something they already knew. Right? He, he tells them stories so that they notice something that was there the whole time, but they never got it. And so this is why Jesus responds to this man in the form of a parable. He says, look, you probably don't realize this, but I need to tell you a story. And how do we know if it got through? Will the man, will the man recognize, hey, I am just like the barn builder in the story? That, that's really the point of this. Will the man who comes to Jesus and says, solve my inheritance problem with my brother, will he recognize himself as the barn builder? See, a parable is like a pebble in your shoe. You know, you have to stop and address the pebble. You have to take it out. You have to deal with it. Or it's like a spiritual EKG. You know, like, blip, blip, blip. Blip. It shows you what's going on. And this parable isn't just for a man with an inheritance problem. It's for us. It's a pebble. It's a spiritual EKG. It asks us, what about you? Will you find yourself in the story? Are you like the barn builder? Let's review the story. So there's a man who's had a wildly successful year. Like production is off the charts this year. And, you know, he's... A man who has um, done very well. There's not something that is obviously bad in this story, is there? In fact, I hope this story bugs you. You know, you're really tuned in today if the story kind of bothers you. Because this is a man who has a good year, and he takes an opportunity to say, I'm, gonna, I'm going to think wisely about my future. Right? He, he's, um, he's good at spotting. He's like a lot of successful people. He's good at spotting money-making opportunities. He's, uh, his plans are, are about taking advantage of economies of scale. He doesn't want to flood the market with his product and drive the prices down. And so he says, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to build some bigger barns to hold my product until the right time to kind of release this over time so it doesn't just drive prices. You know, this is called the parable of the rich fool. But if you're, if you're tuned in, you should be saying, what's wrong with this? You know, what's, what's wrong with this story, right? Let me tell you why he's not a fool. Okay, let me just remind you from the Bible why he's not a fool. It's not foolish. He's not foolish because he's rich. He's not foolish because he's rich. You know, it's not wrong to be rich. Jesus doesn't just say, go be poor, right? If, if you read and look through the rest of the Bible, look through 1 Timothy 6, Jesus tells rich, says, you know, or the... Paul writes to this church, and he says, tell the rich people, he doesn't say stop being rich, he says, don't live richly, live generously. So there's, he's not a fool because he's rich, he's also not a fool because he's successful, right? I mean, here's a guy who has done very well in business, who's obviously very intelligent, who knows how to kind of like make things work, you know, and there's, a, again, look at the rest of the Bible in Colossians 3. Paul writes this church in Colossae, he says this, look, success is not a bad thing. Whatever you do, do with all your might unto the Lord, giving glory to God. Success isn't what makes this guy a fool. And finally, look at this, he's not foolish in, for engaging in strategic planning. 
He's not foolish for thinking of the future. Right? If you read the book of Proverbs, it tells you, look, don't be an idiot. Think about your future. Planning is not a bad thing. So he's not a fool for any of those reasons. You see why the story should get under your skin a little bit? Why is this man a fool? What is it about him? What is it that God sees that, about this man that other people don't? Now, I want to give you, I'm going to look at this passage, and I want to give you three tests. It's like I'm putting the cuff on your arm, and I'm pricking your finger. and I'm, I'm, oh, This is a spiritual test for you. Blip, blip. It's, it's trying to figure out, where is my heart in this? Because that's what the purpose of these parables are. So I'm going to give you three tests. The first is this, the self-talk test. See, the man's internal monologue, his internal thought process, shows up for us in black and white in the story. Everything that he thinks is put down on paper for us. You know, it's like in the movie uh, Liar, Liar, from many, many years ago, starring Jim Carrey. Jim Carrey is a guy who's kind of this unabashed, um, you know, this, this, this liar who bends the truth, distorts the truth all the time. And something happens to him where he's suddenly unable to lie anymore. And what's more, not only does he tell the truth all the time, he begins to say whatever's on his mind out loud. And, you know, this is the, the, the point of the comedy. But here's, the, here's one of the scenes. So um, he's pulled over by a police officer at, for a moving violation. And here's, here's how the conversation goes. The cop says, you know why I pulled you over? And Fletcher says, um, depends on how long you were following me. And the cop says, why don't we just take it from the top? Tell me what you know. And Fletcher says, well, here goes. I sped. I followed too closely. I ran a stop sign. I almost hit a Chevy. I sped some more. I failed to yield at a crosswalk. I changed lanes in the middle of an intersection. I changed lanes without signaling while running a red light and speeding. The cop says, is that all? And he says, no, I have unpaid parking tickets. Please be gentle. I wonder what it would be like for you. What would it be like for you if your internal monologue was in black and white for other people to read, for you to read? What would your internal thought process say about what you dwell on? If your world, your thoughts were written down, what would that reveal about you and what what you think about? See, this man's internal monologue shows us that he has a problem with pronouns. Look at these verses. You know, he says here, eight, eight eyes and four mys. I, 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 my, 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 my. You see the point? It says, he thought to himself. He said to himself. He even plans to talk to himself in the future. See, I will say to myself. This man has an audience of one. He's self-consumed. He's self-consumed. You know, what are you talking to yourself about? In your internal monologue, in your thought process, what are you talking to yourself about? Are you talking to yourself about yourself? See, what's not obvious in this passage to modern people is that in ancient Near East, in the ancient Near East, in Israel at this time, the way that you would handle a situation like this is that you would go talk about it with other people at the city gate. You would go have a conversation with some other people. You would process this. And this man doesn't have other people he's talking to. 
He's processing this only internally. It tells us that his world has shrunk down to I, 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 my, 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 my. Here's the problem with self-consumed people like the rich fool. Self-consumed people consume everything around them. There's one, one pastor in Atlanta, says, he says it this way, greed is the assumption that everything's for my consumption. It's all for me. Susan and I were talking about this passage this week, and I was, we were just kind of um, brainstorming this, and, and she said something I think that's really helpful in this. You know, do we cloak our language in such a way that it looks wise, but it's really greed? Is there something going on there? You know, so when we say, I'm careful with my money, is that secret code for, I'm selfish with my money? You know, or, I don't want to give unless there's authentic emotion behind it. So really feel it. But is that really secret code for, it's mine and I just don't feel like giving it away? See, we justify our greed in nicer terms. I'm a saver, I'm not a spender. But see, behind that can be like, can be really consumption. Either I'm a spender, consume now, or I'm a saver, consume later. See, what underlies both of those? The G word. The G word. Are you self-consumed? What does your self-talk tell you about you? That's the first test. Here's the second test. The question test. Greed has a way of making you stop asking questions. So, you know, I know there are many companies that have made money over the last few years, and by doing so, they have hurt the environment and hurt other communities. And look, you've, you've seen the articles, you've read the exo, exposés, you've even seen the movies on this stuff, or the datelines. You know, the companies where, you know, you say, this is a greedy company, look how they have destroyed this community. And yet the storyline for each of those companies runs the same way every time. You know, it's, it's not like, you know, you could, you could go to that company and you could begin interviewing people. And what you find is not a bunch of cutthroat, greedy people. You don't find a bunch of people who are like, I don't care how we got to make money, we're going to make money. You don't find those people. You might find one or two at the top. But without fail, here's how the stories go. You find people who stop asking questions. People in middle management, people who are in kind of the middle range of the company, who stop saying, hey, why is it we have such a wide profit margin right now? Why is it that, you know, they, they stop asking questions, why? You know, what does this do to our na- the neighborhood that's out there that's affected by this? What does this do to the community? How are we able to make money like this with this kind of environmental impact? What happened to those people? What happened to those people? We wouldn't necessarily call those people greedy, would we? They stopped asking questions. Have you stopped asking questions? Have you stopped asking questions in relationship to your money and your stuff? Questions like, do I really need this? Is this really a wise use of my money? Really spending this much for this? Last year I spent 30 bucks on a pair of jeans. This year I'm okay to drop in 300 without even thinking about it. See, once the data machines, the self-reflective data machines get turned off, that's a problem. That's a concern when you stop asking questions. Now, that's not this man's problem, is it? 
you see him asking questions. In verse 17, he says, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. But is that the right question? Is that the right question he should be asking? See, money has the power to keep you from asking questions. And greed has a way of preventing you from asking the right questions. The right questions. You know, this is the most common question when greed comes up. I'm not as greedy as her, am I? I'm not as greedy as him, am I? So we always want to answer that question in relative terms. You can always find someone who's worse than you. You can always find someone who's a little bit more free with their money or maybe thoughtless with their money. You can always find someone who's, you know, like worse off than you are. And this is why I think Jesus never answers the question directly. How much is too much? Because we would always draw the lines. If he drew the line here, we would draw the line way out here. Or we would answer that by saying, well, at least I'm not like him or her. At least I'm not that person. You know, this, what is the question that this man never asks? He says, what should I do? I think I'll make bigger barns. The rich fool never asks this question. What does God want me to do with this? What does God want me to do with this? There's a um, South African evangelist and author from the, the turn of the last century, century named Andrew Murray. And he asks this question. He says this, the world asks... What does a man own? What does a woman own? But Jesus asks, how does he use it? How does he use it? See, here's the second test, the question test. Are you, have you stopped asking questions? And are you asking the right questions of yourself? Or have you just turned off that machine? Here's the third test, the God talk test. Notice this man's... God talk in this passage. Field produces an enormous crop. He's done very, very well. And the the man's language is very revealing. What does he say? My crops. My crops. My goods. My grain. There's no mention in this of God anywhere. He never says God. There's no sense of humility that he's not the one who made the land produce like that. There's no sense of like, wow, gratitude. God has provided for me in these incredible ways. Does your life, think about this, does your life read like a thank you note to God or does it read like a bill of rights? Is it a thank you note off of which other people say, man, this person, this person has been transformed by God's generosity and they're thankful? Or is it a bill of rights of personal privilege and entitlement? Think about how often you and I view God in blasphemous terms. God, you're some kind of tyrannical dictator. You just, you're, you're exacting some kind of tax from me. This whole thing of giving and generosity. Really, God? Or here's, here's another way that we think about God. We think about God as the backup plan. You know, sure, we invite God into our finances, but it's always when your life hits the skids. It's when things are bad, when you're like, I don't know how I'm going to make it. And suddenly you're like, God, I really need you to be my provider. I really want you to be a part of my financial deliberations. Right? That's when we invite God in, right? We say, God, I need your help today. I need to figure out how I'm going to get through this. 
That's when we invite God in. But see, here's the problem with God. A lot of us have a lot of problems with God, but here's one of them. You know why God like, seems distant from us in some of those conversations? It's because God doesn't want this much. See, God's not about giving you a little bit more. Hey, I just need a little bit more peace. I need a little bit of God's um, power in my life. I need just a little bit more money. I'm not asking to be made a billionaire, just a little bit more. I need a little bit more of God's provision. I need a little bit more of God's kindness in my life. And see, God is not about a little bit. He's not like, hey, I'm just going to shake a little bit on here. God is about transformation. He's not about influence. He doesn't want to just like be the like oregano on the pizza. God is about transformation. He wants to come into your life in such a way. He wants you to open up this area in such a, in such a way that you're like, God, really, I need you to come in and just completely redo everything. I need the extreme makeover. I need you to come and work deeply in this area. See, God doesn't want to be the backup plan because the greatest competitor in your life to God is your money, is your stuff. Jesus, you know, some of you are like, I hate coming to church when they talk about this. Jesus talked about money. I, I can't, if I did the percentage number of sermons per year that Jesus talked about money, you'd really be worn out on this subject. Jesus talked about this all the time because there's a deep competitor in your life for God and that is your stuff and your money. You know, later in this passage, if you skip down in Luke 12 and you come down to verse 34, so on page 871 of your Bible, Jesus says, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. You know, now this is quote is so well-worn that a lot of you don't even hear it anymore. Like you've heard this. Many of you have been in churches a long time, and you're like, I know this one. I've heard this sermon. I know about Jesus saying this. But do you understand how backwards this quote is? See, if you're, if you're thinking about this, you'll say, Jesus, you have that backwards. You have it backwards. It should say... Where your heart is, then your treasure will be. That's how we talk. You know, I have a heart for something means I'm passionate about something, right? Really passionate about this. So it would make sense if we for it to say that whatever you're passionate about, that's your treasure. That's how we think about things. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is saying whatever you your he's not saying whatever you're passionate about is your treasure. No, he's saying your treasure is like the puppet master, and you're like the marionette. Your treasure has strings attached to you that make you dance, that make you sweat, that drive you, that make you work, that make you sweat. Your treasure is not what you're passionate about. Your treasure is what's making you move, what's making you dance in your life. You know, see, listen well to the warning of this parable. Jesus is not saying, hey, I need your money. He's saying, I want your heart. And the problem is your heart's attached to your money. See, it would be easy. And some of you are right here right now. And you're, you're, you're hearing this parable, this sermon, and it's playing to the already guilty conscience in you. When I was a kid, there were these terrible commercials on TV. And there was a woman named Sally Struthers. 
And she was trying to raise money for starving kids, okay? And they would show these pictures. I mean, the pictures. Brutal. You know, pictures of kids starving, and she'd be crying. And she'd be like, won't you please save the children? You know, and you're like, oh, I just want to throw up after watching that, right? It plays to the guilt. It plays to the guilt. And, you know, the appeal of this sermon this morning is not, is not this. It's not just give away more and to stop being people who say, I need more. That's not, if, you, if that's where you think I am, you know, look, that's not where I'm going with this. That's not where this passage takes this. A couple years ago, after having had two bikes stolen in Philly, I just got sick of it. I'd had enough, and I went and finally dropped the money for the New York City chain. Does anybody know what the New York City chain is? This thing weighs more than my bike, right? I mean, it's indestructible. It's made of like... I don't know, titanium or plutonium or something like that. This thing is indestructible. No one is ever going to steal my ridiculously ugly bike anyway. But nobody's going to definitely do it with this chain on. You know, and I think that most people think of greed in their life, and they think this is like the Mickey Mouse chain. Wire cutters. Should be able to snap right through that one. You know, it's, it's easy. We can break through that one. But I would tell you that greed in your life is like the New York chain. It's like the New York City chain, and it is wrapped around your heart, and it is impossible. I can, I'm going to tell you this from very personal experience. It is impossible for us to cut through. This is the indestructible chain. You know, there's only one power that's able to cut through this. There's only one power that's able to cut through this. You know, one thing that's going to get you out of the self-absorption stupor that is your life right now A friend of mine says this, there are two kinds of people in this world. And I, I, I know that you love it when pastors categorize people. You just love to be categorized. I am one of two kinds of people. There are two kinds of people in this world. There are people who say, I need more, I want more. And there are people who say, I have more. I have more. This is the only power. This is the only power that's able to bust through this lock. Bust through that chain is for you to be able to say, in Christ, I have more. In Christ, I have more. See, this is the difference between a life that reads like a personal bill of rights of entitlement and privilege and a life that reads like a thank you note to God. How do you view this God? Has God, has God a tyrannical dictator exacting a tax from your life? Or is God incredibly generous with you? One writer, Eugene Peterson, writes this way. He says, We are set down in a world that is prodigious in wealth. The Creator is incredibly generous with us. We're given what we need, but so much more. Much, much more. We're not given a few trees to block our shade from the sun, to shade us from the sun, but entire forests of pine and beech and oak. We're given not just a few stars that we can navigate our ships but skies full of pictures and stories. We're given not just a few birds to keep the insects at bay. We're given a ballet company, a ballet company of shapes and colors and songs. God is incredibly generous. But this wealth is also interior, he writes. God does not barely save us. He doesn't dole out just enough grace to get us across the threshold of heaven. He is lavish. 
we find ourselves in the middle of a way of life that has as one of its characteristic words, blessing. My cup runs over. God is not stingy. God is incredibly generous with us. Uh, Tim Keller, who's a pastor in New York, who I quote all the time, you know, is a purported to, to read the, the Lord of the Rings books every year, which I think is a great practice for your life, incidentally. Um, you know, if you're not familiar with the Lord of the Rings trilogy, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's books that are about a treasure. It's books that are about a ring. You know, a treasure. And here's the thing about the treasure. It's a treasure that is powerful. And there's something about the magic of this ring that whoever owns it ends up being owned by it. Whoever owns it ends up being owned by it, and every owner of the ring calls it their precious. This is what Keller says of this. He says, at the center of everyone's soul is a precious. Once your soul treasures something, it becomes your precious. Something that you live for. Something that you you would die for. Eventually something, though, that ends up owning you. The Bible says, at the center of every person in this room, is a precious that you would die to possess, that you would die to hold on to. And see, the gospel shows us a different kind of precious. It shows us, rather than something that when you own it, it owns you, we find in Jesus a precious who came and died for you, who doesn't exact life out of you, but comes to give you life, who doesn't come to, to... rigidly control your life, but to give you freedom and joy. It is the one precious in the entire world that if it is at the center of your life, it gives life. It doesn't take it. If some of you are like high-fiving me at this point, you're like, Jeff, yeah, you know, I know that. Some people here need to hear that. I hope some people become Christians today and make Jesus their precious. Yeah, high-five. But see, look. This passage doesn't sit here for us to confirm our existential beliefs about God. It doesn't come to us and say, hey, is Jesus the ultimate precious? And you go, yes, he is. I know he is. It says, where are you living? Where are you living today? Is Jesus precious in your week? Is Jesus precious in your life? Could other people read off of your life that Jesus is precious beyond any treasure? That he is the ultimate thing. He is worth living for. He is the... He is the one thing worth giving all for. What kind of fool are you? What kind of fool are you? Everyone, no matter what your mama says, everybody, somebody's fool. Everybody is. That's what this pa- these two parables are about. So we, re- we read the first parable, and we read the parable of the rich fool, right? He comes and says, hey, I'm going to build barns. I'm going to make bigger life for myself. His life reads like Dave Matthews' song, Tripping Billies, Eat, Drink, and Beat Merry, for tomorrow we die. And that's what happens, right? God comes to him and says, you fool, you are all about eating and drinking and being merry, and tomorrow your soul is being demanded of you. See, the irony of the story is that there's actually only one thing that God requires of this man. Only one thing that God demands of him, and that is his soul. It's banking language, people. God requires this of you. And see, the irony of the story is the man thought he owned everything, and in the end, God says, you don't even own yourself. Your soul, it's on loan. You're a steward. You're a manager. 
You're a manager of your own soul. You know, see, the, the rich fool story asks of you and me, and listen, please listen to these questions. Are you sick with the parasite of greed? Or are you living and using your money with eternity in view? Do you give and live and love because tomorrow you're going to live forever? Or are you hoarding and keeping and protecting because you know you have to worry about tomorrow? But there's another kind of fool, isn't there? See, we read two parables, even though I've majored on this one today from Luke 12. We read another parable. We read the parable of the treasure in the field and another kind of fool. Everybody's somebody's fool. And this man... It tells us about a treasure buried in the ground. And this man goes and he finds it. And when he finds it, he rejoices. And he buries the treasure back. And he goes and he, he sells everything he owns to buy this piece of land. And see, what does the world say about that? Idiot! Right? The first guy, he looks wise. Preparing for tomorrow. The second guy looks like an idiot. Fool. But isn't this what the Bible says about Christ? Jesus is a treasure. A treasure above all treasures. And, you know, this world is not going to say, yes, you're so wise for, for centering your life around, it, around this. 1 Corinthians tells us the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the wisdom and power of God. Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom of the world, through its wisdom, did not know him, God is pleased through the foolishness for what was preached to save those who believe. The foolishness of God is wiser than man's strength. The weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. See, the man who sells everything, he looks like an idiot. He looks like a fool. But everybody, somebody's fool. Which are you? Are you the rich fool? Are you living life like the rich fool? You who know Jesus. Is your life basically the tripping Billy song? Eat, drink, and be merry. Are you the wise, the sage, the poor sage, who has said, my life is about this treasure. And nobody's going to back me up on this, but this matters. This is worth giving everything for. See, in a sense, what we do in this place every Sunday, it, it, it's, it's kind of like training to be an appraiser. You know, do you know that what uncut diamonds look like? A fistful of rocks, right? They look like a fistful of rocks. And it takes a trained eye to say, this is not valueless. This is invaluable. The reason we come and worship together, one of the reasons is that we would train our eyes for what is valuable. We would encourage each other. We come and we sing these songs and we confess our sins and we raise our hands and we pray and we, we give thanks and all these things, we're encouraging each other. We're saying, yeah, we're fellow diamond appraisers. And it helps us to distinguish between what is a handful of rocks and what is valueless uncut diamonds. Dear friends, do you hear the call of this parable? To say, I have more. I have a hard time seeing it. I have a hard time living like this. I have a hard time. Yes, you do. This is why we need one another. This is why we come and we gather around 
a table where we feast every week and we remember what is value, what's invaluable and what is valueless. Which kind of fool are you? In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.